This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, welcome to Superwomen, where we talk to amazing women shaping culture, changing the world, and lifting each other up along the way. I'm your host, Rebecca Minkoff, and today I'm excited to talk with Michelle Lee. She's the Allure Editor-in-Chief and also a really dear friend. Allure is a magazine, website, and brand focused on beauty, and they have over 10 million monthly readers. Michelle is one of the youngest editor-in-chiefs at Allure and is the epitome of the next generation of editors. Her innovative style has been a game changer when it comes to ensuring that all women are represented in the beauty industry. Superwomen is proud to have Prudential as its presenting sponsor. Prudential and wellness expert Alexandra Drain are traveling across America to learn more about our country's challenging financial landscape in a new project called The State of Us. To learn more about the financial challenges facing America, visit prudential.com forward slash state of us. And stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear more about this important project. This is Michelle Lee on Superwomen. Thank you, Miss Michelle Lee, the editor-in-chief of Allure Magazine and my friend. I'm happy to say that. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here. So one of the things I want to talk about, I'm going to be asking you lots of questions, is um, about your career, about being a multifaceted, multidimensional woman. Um, And so my first question for you is, you've had a very enviable career path. Um, and when I listened to you on another podcast being interviewed, I was, I thought it was incredible. You know, you've gone from one incredible opportunity to another. Um, and so I'm curious to hear, you know, from the beginning, you don't have to tell me about each time getting a better opportunity, but how did you sort of, I don't call it luck, right? I really believe that you worked incredibly hard for it, but how did you sort of navigate that path? Yeah. It's really interesting that you mentioned that about luck because, I've thought about that a lot recently, like as I talk to people about my career, and I'm usually like, do you have like an hour for me to go through everything? Because even just looking at my resume, I have had so many different jumps, but each of them was actually really important. And I do think that with anyone who is in a certain position, a lot of it does have to do with a little bit of luck, right? But I also do tend to think that some of the decisions that I chose to make opened those doors for me too, and kind of presented the opportunity for me to have luck. So I grew up mostly in Connecticut. And then when I was 16, my dad got a job in Florida. So we moved down there. And it's funny, I think, because thinking about education, you know, I'd spent 16 years of my life and like everyone who I knew in Connecticut, when it came time for them to graduate high school, a lot of them were going to Ivy League colleges. For me, once I got down to Florida, though, everybody was going in-state. So I stayed down there um, and I finished high school and went to school. I got my degree in magazine journalism. But I think I was just so bored in college. Like I was definitely one of those people who I just wanted to graduate already. So um, my last two years of college, I actually worked full time. I moved all of my journalism classes to be at night. And I got a a full-time job as a staff writer at a newspaper. So I tend to think of that as the early beginnings of my career. So as much as a lot of people in media kind of start their careers once they move to New York, I actually feel like I started mine down in Florida. So I was 
someone who at that point didn't know what I wanted to specialize in. Like I definitely have always loved beauty and fashion, but I was all over the place. Like I feel like I've talked about this so much that like I actually worked in um, extreme sports at some point. I have worked on uh, tech finance. I've done things. I actually was the automotive writer for Glamour for a while. Wow. So, you know, talk about like Jack and Jill of all trades. Like I definitely have had a super, super varied career. Um, But more recently, like I think the bulk of my career was really spent in women's publishing. I took a little bit of a detour into celebrity. But the past couple of jobs that I've had, um, right before I came to Allure, I was the editor-in-chief and chief marketing officer at Nylon. And then, of course, this amazing opportunity comes up to be at Allure. And people have asked me before, like, you know, what did you think when you got this opportunity? And it literally, for the past 20 years that I've been working in media, like, what a total dream job. So, of course, I would make the jump and, and come over here. So one of the things that I personally struggle with that I know a lot of our circle struggles with, whether you're in fashion or finance, is working, having kids. For me, I feel like there should be bubbles next to us with all the women that help us, you know, live these lives. Um, What is your support circle like? Oh, God. Well, it's so much for sure about relying on friends and family. My husband is amazing. Like, he's super hands-on with the kids. My parents live about 45 minutes away, so I'm constantly relying on them. I definitely think, I don't know about you, like with that first child, like the first pregnancy that I had, I think that I was such a perfectionist and I didn't want to ask for help. So the second time around, I definitely asked for a lot more help. Like I think there's something about like if you're a type A personality and you're used to being successful, it's hard to ask for help. So I I constantly feel like now for people who I know who are like pregnant with their first, I'm always like, just ask for help. Yes. Like especially in the first two weeks after um, like bringing the newborn home, it's so hard because you don't know how you're going to react with being sleep deprived. Like I was a crazy person, an actual crazy person. And I think part of it is hormones. Part of it is lack of sleep. Part of it is just not knowing what the hell you're doing. So I always say it's like, honestly, you, you need a support system. You can't do it on your own. Definitely not. And I think that a lot of women don't talk about the sacrifices that they have to make, good or bad. I don't regret my sacrifices, but I'm curious to hear from you some of the sacrifices, whether it was work or, you know, kids or family that you had to make. Oh, totally. Well, I think um, the mommy guilt is real. Um, I'll actually tell you a story of something that happened recently. So my kids, my um, son Ethan is 13 and my daughter Gabby is 10. So Gabby is a singer, and so she and her friend Ashley were in the talent show this year. So Ashley was rapping, and Gabby was singing, and they were practicing so hard, and I was so excited. And she was like, Mom, you're going to come, right? And um, the talent show was at 7 o'clock. So I found out that Gabby was going on second um, out of the whole talent show. So I left work super, super early, and my commute is probably about an hour home. I got stuck in the worst traffic ever. So for weeks, I was saying to her, of course I'm going to be there. I promise I'm going to be there. I literally got to the school, and it turned 7 o'clock. I was running towards the door, and as soon as I opened the door, I saw the principal. She hugged me, and she was like, I'm so sorry. You just missed it. And it was like one of those moments where I just wanted to cry. And I saw Gabby like two minutes later, and she was like, hi, Mommy. And she was not affected by it whatsoever. Like she was sad, obviously, that I hadn't seen it. But it also, to me, it was like more of a big deal than it was for her. 
I used to watch other families when they would be with their kids and they had to go to a playground before I had kids or even have to go to those three minute performances. I was like, ugh, I don't understand this. Why would anyone care that much? And now it's like, my kid has a show. You better block off my calendar for those three minutes. I got to get there two hours ahead. I'm like crazy. Well, I think you also start to realize like I now mark the passage of time with like how old our kids are. And it's crazy to me that Ethan is 13. Like we have a full fledged teenage now. I can only imagine what that's going to be like. <laughs> part of me is looking forward to it and part of me is a little scared from what I've heard. But um, So back to the work. When working at so many different publications, you know, I'm curious to know how you've adopted. You know, there has to be a brand voice. You, you know, you're bringing your skills to it. But how do you sort of switch that with each publication? Yep. Well, I think it's different when you're in the management role. And you're setting what that voice is versus working for a brand and then adopting someone else's voice. So in my past two jobs, so at Allure and then also at Nylon, I was brought on as sort of the agent of change. So I was brought on to brands that had been around for decades, um, but the owners and upper management had really wanted to bring both of those brands into a more modern space um, to kind of um, make them more digitally savvy, to work on video, to work on social, everything else. So I think for me, um, it's exciting to be able to work on different voices. And I think a lot of it is really just establishing who's your audience. Like, who is it that you're talking to? The voice at Nylon is entirely different from the voice at Allure. I think just even the cultural references that we would make, like um, Nylon was very rooted in street style and streetwear and music and culture. There were certain uh, musical references that I think that we could make that I think the Allure audience might be like, who is that person? So to me, I feel like the first thing is really just establishing who is it that you're talking to. And once you figure out, it's almost like targeting one specific person in your mind and thinking about if I wanted to communicate something to them, how would I actually do it? So when you go to a new magazine, how do you sort of adopt the new brand voice, but also respect the tradition and sort of the the tone of that magazine that it's been inherently known for? It's a difficult balance, I think. And you know, the great thing for me has been all of the brands that I've gone to where I have been the one who has been like, okay, what's the new vision? I've also been a massive fan of. So when I went to Nylon, I had already been a massive fan of Nylon for a really long time. So I knew what the voice was and I knew who the audience was. But I also, um, you know, I'll give you an example of it. The beauty um, content at Nylon at the time, you could just tear it out of the magazine or, you know, pull an article off online and it could live in any women's media brand. And there was nothing that was really special about it. But to me, the nylon voice was funky. It was edgy. It was like rocker girl. And it was a little bit weird. Can you define edgy for me? Edgy. Oh, well, edgy means something different to everybody, I guess, right? Like everyone has their own um, <laughs> their own threshold for what edginess is. I think some people might say that sometimes we go a little bit too edgy. Um, I think edginess is that... People are using beauty now to define their tribe. There used to be this safeness about beauty that I actually think um, we can push the envelope a little bit more. And I don't just mean it in terms of, you know, what the actual beauty looks are. Like if you did a wild cat eye or something, like that's part of edginess. But it's also just pushing the boundaries of what is considered beautiful. And I think that, um, you know, the, the term weird has been used in such a negative way. I love the term weird. To me, weird is creative. It's unique. So I really wanted to play up the weirdness and to make it so that if you saw a beauty story either in print or in digital or anything, you knew that it was a nylon beauty story. And similarly at Allure too, like 
Allure, when I started, was a 25-year-old brand, and I loved it. I was a huge fan of Allure, but it also just needed an update. And I think that um, representation was definitely part of it. I like to say that, um, you know, flipping through, it had somehow developed this image of what I refer to now as the uptown lady. It was kind of like perfect skin, like no pores, perfectly coiffed hair, extremely amazing body, everything. But the world had kind of changed. So I think that to me, it was really seeing, you know, who is this audience, but like a more modern audience that's more inclusive, where we can kind of be a little bit edgier. Like, it's okay, because I feel like the world has changed now. So last year, um, we did a shoot and a whole feature online about pubic hair. And I will tell you, I was so nervous about it, because I wasn't sure about how anybody was going to react. And now I look at it as anything that I feel nervous about is actually amazing. And it's great the fact that I feel nervous because it just means that we're doing something that's pushing me out of my comfort zone. It's going to push other people out of their comfort zone. And it's kind of what we need. Like we're stuck in this thing of, you know, there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of beauty noise out there. So if we're not the ones who are pushing the envelope and constantly trying to challenge people, who else is going to do it? And so as a young editor-in-chief, I, I remember when Eva Chen was like going to Teen Vogue and I was like, I actually know someone that's my age that's an editor-in-chief. That's crazy. Like when I first moved to New York at 18, you think of these people as, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the top of the ladder. So you're very young. Do you ever feel that ageism is working against you? A hundred percent. It's really interesting to think about because... Um, when I was at Nylon, I was sort of like the old lady there. Right. Like everybody who I worked with was like very, very young 20s. So I was the only one or one of the only people who had kids. Um, I definitely felt like, I don't know, I felt like the old lady there. And then suddenly I come to Allure and it's been a really interesting thing because especially when I first got hired, I definitely experienced this like ageism where, you know, 95% of the comments that I get on social media are super positive. But you always tend to remember like that other little teeny tiny percent of like the nasty comments. So some people were very angry, I think, when I got hired and I got snail mail, I remember, of someone saying to me, because you're like 13 years old, and I was like, ah, oh. And I also remember like when I first got hired, there was um, a women's website, which shall go unnamed, um, which had talked about um, my hiring and kind of compared my hiring to replacing the classic car with the younger Asian model. And I was like, oh, first of all, that is so racist. And second of all, how dare you? So I definitely feel like it's been a weird thing because I've also been in this industry for 20 years. So it's not like I'm some spring chicken who's like just graduated. But I definitely feel that. And I think, um, you know, for better or worse, I think I look a lot younger than I actually am. I would take that part of the deal. <laughs> Just the young part. Um, you know, I feel like it's unfair because you meet all these young men out of Silicon Valley, right, with these crazy ideas or you hear about, you know, and no one questions them, right? Exactly. It's crazy. What did I do when my daughter wouldn't stop sleeping in my bed? Well... I got smart and I got her a Helix mattress because I knew she would sleep so comfortably that she would never leave her bed in the middle of the night ever again. Helix Sleep built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com superwomen Take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep 
of your life. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. Get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash superwomen. That's helixsleep.com forward slash superwomen for $125 off your mattress order. helixsleep.com forward slash superwomen. I'd love for you to share with us, you know, some of the struggles that you or sacrifices to get to where you are. I think, you know, speaking again as as an old person, um, people, I find so many young people think that they can Amazon Prime their career. And I'm, I don't know the shortcut to a career. I just don't. I think it takes 10 years at least before you start seeing what you think might happen in year one. Um, so will you talk about, you know, from the beginning, just how hard you had to work to get to where you are? Oh, God. I honestly, I attribute so much of my success to super duper hard work. Like, I definitely think there was probably, I'm guessing like a decade of my career, it was just like total grind. Like, I definitely would wake up super early. I wouldn't stop working. Like, for most of it, I was employed full time, but I was always freelance writing on the side too. So it's sort of like, it's filling your life with what you think that that next thing is going to lead to. So um, one of my very first full-time jobs was actually a parenting magazine. And even looking back on it, I'm like, at that point in my life, in like my early 20s, I didn't have kids on the brain. I didn't have kids yet. I knew nothing about parenting or children or babies or anything. So it definitely was not my dream job. At the same time, though, I got so much good experience from it. And I talked to my editors about whether or not I could freelance write for other people. So while I was working at parenting, I was also writing for a lot of different women's magazines. Plus, I was writing a lot for men's health. So because I was able to do that, you know, it's a lot of extra time on the weekends, at night, everything else. You got to hustle. I like the word hustle. I tell people uh, life is a beautiful hustle. It's not about balance. (laughs) Um, So have there ever been times or uncertainty where you thought what you were doing might not be, you know, what you wanted it to be or the end result wouldn't be what you thought it would be? And who did you turn to or what did you tell yourself during those tough times? Yep. You know, what's so interesting is like when you look back, and I'm sure you feel this too, it's like when you look back on your career and things are working out, it's like every decision that you made is like, wow, that really worked out. But like, I don't know, in that moment, did I know exactly what I was doing? Like, I feel like sometimes it's just about taking a leap of faith. So um, as I mentioned, I had taken a detour into the world of celebrity. I was on part of the launch team at Us Weekly. And I kind of had spent too long going into this like celebrity direction. And I remember like meeting with some of the HR people at some of the big publishing companies and being like, am I okay? Like if I stay here a little bit longer and am I going to be tagged as a a quote unquote celebrity person? They're like, you're fine. You're fine for now. Eventually it changed though. So eventually they were like, okay, you have to leave because you're not going to be seen in any other light besides this. So at some point, I took a leap of faith, and I was making amazing money at this place, had a really super awesome job, some flexibility, everything else, but I left. And at the height of my career there, I literally just walked away, and I took a job for a half pay cut at an all-digital place. And again, I had no idea really what was going to happen, but I also just felt like it was the right step for me to take. And in hindsight, again, like I can look back on it and everything worked out great. But in that moment, did I actually know it? No. 
I know. Sometimes people ask me to go back and be like, if you could change anything about your career, what would that be? And I have trouble saying what's the one thing I would change because I'm here now, right? And so if I had changed that, I'd just say, I wish I would have invested in Facebook or in Apple, right? That, then, then I would have been great. <laughs> so one of the two issues you're very outspoken about is inclusivity and diversity. Um, at the dinner we had in Cannes that Sadly, you were not. You know, someone actually said it's called representation, right? And which I love as a, as kind of a new way of looking at it. Um, how are these two words represented at Allure? Yep. Well, I think it's it's getting us past that point of having the token person of color, right? And it's funny because thinking back about even just again the past two or three years in media and advertising and everything else with representation. I think that there are still a lot of people and a lot of brands who feel like if you have a mix of, you know, let's say it's an ad campaign, if you have 20 models, if you have like one non-white person. That doesn't count. It doesn't count. It doesn't count. Absolutely. So I think um, the world has changed quite a bit where I think now because of social media and everything else, people have their eyes on it. But it's like if you're a makeup brand and you're launching foundations and it's not inclusive and you don't have enough like darker shade like shades you will be called out for it so hard and i think that's great like there should be some accountability for making sure that people understand what they need to do but i still think that there's so much work to be done um i agree i love the word representation i just think that now we have to think about what's next right where it's like um everyone's kind of pushing forward pushing forward Our June cover that we did this year um, was our hair issue, and we put three Asian models on the cover, so they each had their separate cover. It was, it's crazy to think that in 2018, that that was sort of like a groundbreaking thing for us to do, but we had so many people reach out on social media being like, thank you so much. I never thought that this would happen. Chrissy Teigen actually responded to it also being like, is this an international magazine? Because she was like, this is so awesome. I can't even imagine that this is somebody here in the States. Wow. And it was our way of looking at tokenism that, in, you know, in like a normal magazine cover, let's say, if they did a group of three women, you'd have a white girl, you'd have a black girl, and you'd have an Asian girl. Like there'd only be like the one Asian girl. So for us, we were saying, well, why is that? Like, why can't we have three Asian models in the cover? So I think now the way that I look at diversity is not just – we don't want to have like the flavor of the month, but it's sort of like how do we represent people and kind of challenge the way that people are looking at representation to begin with. So, um, you know, I think it goes into everything. It's not just picking who the covers are. It's choosing who we feature online. It's choosing what our images look like on Instagram. Like it's just it's a decision that every brand and every person has to make in every single thing that they do. Yeah, it has to pervade everything. Otherwise, it definitely doesn't come forward as authentic. Was there ever concern from advertisers of like, whoa, you're introducing, you know, diversity? Even though I don't think that there was ever a conversation from anyone saying, don't do this, I think that I knew in my heart and soul that it felt like a risk in the industry. But I think that we in the past couple of years have done like really awesome things that I'm super proud of. So we became um, the first major women's magazine here in the States to feature a woman in a hijab on the cover. Um, We did this amazing cover last year, which was our April issue. So April historically has always been our skincare issue. But last April, just with everything going on politically, we decided to make it an exploration of skin color instead. And it's still, honestly, it's one of those covers that everybody talks about. So people still on social media and everything else will be, you know that cover that you guys did? I really loved that. So I think um, 
Like when I lived in Connecticut, the town that we were in was super not diverse. Like I would say there was like, it was maybe 99.9% white. So for me, like growing up at that time, not seeing myself reflected in anybody, either in media and entertainment or just even where I was living, I think it really had like a lasting effect on me. Looking then at what our impact can be on other people by showcasing other like sides of beauty and other images of beauty, I feel like my own personal experience with that has just helped to shape so much of it too. Totally. And you also removed anti-aging. That was a very bold move uh, for for you to do. Can you talk a little bit about why you removed that title and what inspired it? Yeah, it was scary. <laughs> we were really You have to unsure. tell our listeners why it was scary first. <laughs> I know why, because yeah. I read Allure. But. It was scary because um, we had a lot of conversations about it leading up to this. So funnily enough, the idea first, I think, was mentioned in our office by Phil Picardi, who was our digital director at the time, who Phil, I don't know, he's like maybe 26 now, right? He's like one of the youngest members of staff. But he was someone who was like, why do we still use this term anti-aging? And then separately, I was with our beauty director, Jenny, at an event, and then she started talking about it, like in a completely different conversation. And it's kind of true that when you're just talking with your friends, do you ever say to them, what's your favorite anti-aging beauty product, right? It's just something that is used in the industry, and we've all come to accept it. So as we started talking about it more in the office, it was like, it's kind of true. Like, why do we use this anti-aging thing? Like, it's a very shamey word if you really dig into the psychology of it. I always equate it to the word diet, right? Like, diet is kind of a nasty word right now where for decades in women's publishing, it was all about how can you lose 15 pounds in five days and you're going to diet and you're going to starve yourself just to be skinny. So nowadays, I feel like the smarter way to look at things is it's all about wellness. So you can exercise, you can eat right. Will you then get the body that you're looking for? Possibly. But if your ultimate goal is really just to live longer and to live better, um, it's a healthier mentality to have. And I think the same way about anti-aging, that by even just saying anti-aging, it's again shaming women and people in general for getting older. And it's literally one of the only facts of life. Like every single minute, every single day, we're all getting older. And it's not something that we should feel bad about. And I think the tricky thing is that people thought by us banning this term anti-aging, oh, does that mean you're not going to cover skincare products anymore? We were like, no, we love skincare products. We want you to use your retinol. We want you to use your eye cream, everything else. It's just that we don't want people to feel like aging is this horrible thing that we have to fight to the death. Yeah, it's a race we're definitely not going to win. Yep. And <laughs> and so to answer your question about why I was scared of it, we didn't know how the industry was going to react. It's something where we could have made this um, bold declaration of we're banning this term. And then all of our advertisers, all of the partners who we use, um, you know, with every single product that we're testing and everything else, people could have revolted against us. We had no idea. So after that issue came out, um, so I wrote my editor's letter about why we were banning the term. So many people wrote to us. So whether they were from other brands, whether they were other editors from from different magazines or different media brands, um, people saying that they wanted to join us. And that made us feel so good. We also heard from a couple of brands who were like, we love what you guys are doing. And then someone would send back being like, would you like to join us? And they're like, <laughs> like we can't. And I understand there's a lot that goes into packaging and branding and everything else. We don't expect that it's going to be a change that happens in the industry overnight. We see it as like a baby step. And then will things start to snowball? Hopefully. You have a very successful print magazine, but also your 
digital savvy has increased the footprint, you know, online. How did your background prepare you to be able to navigate both sides of that so that you could bring that skill set to something that was just print? Yep. I think print is not going anywhere. I just think that it's shifting, though. And I actually think that with the younger generation, I actually think that there is this, like, this hunger for something tangible again. If you think about um, experiences and everything else too, like there is this thing of like people want those in real life experiences. And I think everybody can kind of accept, myself included, we're on our phones so much that it's a different experience to be able to like sit back and like lean back and have a magazine, right? I always say like having a magazine is a lean back experience when looking at your phone is a lean forward. So you kind of want to engage in things differently and just think about like your posture and like like everything about like the way that you feel. Your neck. Your neck. But I also think like for our brand in particular, um, I think that Allura being in beauty, like as much as what people say about media and the media business is like, it's pretty tumultuous right now. I think we sit in this awesome space because beauty is massively on the rise. Like there are so many beauty fanatics and like so many, so many products and so many new brands and everything else that I feel like we are in such a great place because of the subject matter and also just in the way that like we've really broadened what beauty actually is too. The fact that we can talk about things like, you know, Halima Adin and her hijab and what that means for beauty and about anti-aging and other things. I feel like it's a really interesting and just like rich space. Oh, but to answer your question about digital too. Yes. yes. So um, I, again, going back to that job where I quit and took a pay cut in half, I think I knew at that point I needed to understand digital. And that job in particular, um, it really helped me understand that I had gotten too comfortable. And I think getting comfortable is kind of like death, right? Like we should always keep learning. And for whatever reason, I just stopped thinking that I needed to learn. So I got this hunger for learning where I taught myself um, everything about technology. I taught myself how to design responsive websites. I taught myself SEO, CSS. So I learned like some light code. I learned video production. I learned photography. I learned Photoshop. I can make an awesome PowerPoint. Um, I learned so many different things and like more than what those actual skills were. I feel like it just it reinvigorated in me this desire to learn new things. So I think now, like when I'm talking about things at work, let's say, where we're coming up with something that's like really innovative for digital or social or video, I get so excited about that stuff. It actually kills me that there aren't more editors who kind of grew up in like the print phase of things who feel that excited about stuff. Like I feel like we should all involve ourselves in learning everything about branded content, learning everything about product and design and everything else. Like I think that there's exciting stuff that's happening on all the various platforms. And if you're not like keeping on top of it, you're going to be crushed by it. Where do you go to learn that? I read a lot of um, trade. So I read a lot of like Digiday. I'll read, you know what I love? I love Fast Company mm -hmm. too. I feel like I'm always inspired by stuff on there. I read um, TechCrunch, but honestly, I get a lot of my news and media just through Twitter, which I hate, but like I can't give it up. I'm just like a huge consumer of all media. Yeah. I think you have to be, you know, I didn't want to hear this from my brother, but years ago he was like, you can't just be a designer. Like you have to evolve and read things and consume. And I was like, I am. He's like, yes, you're consuming design, right? Art and design, but you're not consuming what's like business and tech. And I was like. Blech. And then I made a Flipboard account 
And then I started reading and consuming. I was like, why didn't I do this earlier? I've learned so much about the business side or technology or, you know, just the ideas that you can have when you learn something new. Oh, totally. And I'm like, why didn't I do this 10 years ago? Well, it's part of the reason why I love podcasts too. Like right. I love listening to podcasts because I'm constantly learning. I have a pretty long commute in the morning and the after- and the evening. And I used to listen to the radio. I, li- I don't know why I was doing this. I used to listen to music. And I got so irritated. I remember calling my husband on like a drive home being like, I feel like I'm wasting my life. And he was like, why don't you listen to podcasts? And I was like, okay, it changed my life. Because suddenly, instead of hating that time I was spending commuting, I was learning something. And then I felt like, wait, I'm like filling my brain with information. Amazing. It's totally worth it. I need to lengthen my commute so I can listen to longer podcasts. <laughs> Just keep riding the train. <laughs> totally. um, so one thing I like to ask every one of my guests is something that we might be surprised to know about you. Okay, here's my share. My friend had pink eye, and I remember that breast milk can help pink eye. So I did. What? Yes. Yeah, so we dropped some breast milk into her eye, and voila, she was cured. Get out. Yeah, the next day it was fine. So you don't have to share anything along that topic, but that okay, was what I was going to say. I'm like, hmm, I could like rack my brain for no, something it can be that's interesting. Any, that. like, doesn't have to be personal care, but I mean, <laughs> you are you are no um, So so I'm trying to think. I mean, I have an, an enormous enormous family. It's not as fun as breast milk in the eye, but I <laughs> um, my mom is actually one of ten kids, and my dad is one of six. So I like when I get together with my family, it's like literally like a hundred people. And I remember growing up thinking that there was nothing weird about this whatsoever. And actually my husband is also from a really big family. His dad is one of 14 kids. So like we just have these enormous, enormous family get togethers. And again, it wasn't until I got a little bit older, I wouldn't even say like in college that I started to realize how actually rare that is. (laughs) You've built in friends all the time. Yep. I love that. Um, so my last question for you and part of why I want to do this podcast is to just get women inspired and inspire the camaraderie around us. Um, so do you have any advice that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yes. Well, I keep seeing um, it's like that meme that goes around where it's like queens fix each other's crowns, right? And whenever it goes around, I feel like people have made like t-shirts and stuff on it. But it's the one that kind of like sticks in my head because – you know, everyone wants to believe that the women's media industry is like the devil wears Prada. And for sure, there are people like that in our industry who I'm sure we have both met. But I also just think that this is going to sound like such a a weird story, but it's like my time in um, extreme sports actually made me change the way I look at competition. Like throughout my life, I've been, I feel like it's like I'm a quietly competitive person. Like I'm not that person who's going to like get in your face and be like, I'm going to crush you. But I think because I am a perfectionist and I like, I want to be successful at everything I do. I think that there's this drive in me that always wants to be successful and to kind of win, win, win. But um, again, going back to my like extreme sports days, I always think that You know, if you grow up and you're looking at, you know, boxers or people who play team sports like soccer or anything else, it's always like, I am going to crush the other team. Um, For anyone who's like a football fan, it's like you are an ardent fan of your own team, but then you hate the other team. It's so weird, though, because in extreme sports, it's the complete opposite. Like, even though they're all competing with each other, they're all cheering for each other on the sideline. They truly, truly want each other to do well. And I always think back about that and that had like a really lasting impact on me that it's sort of like you can still be competitive with people, but you're also you just want everyone to succeed because you realize the more that they all succeed, you're going to succeed as well. And I think that digital within media actually brought the same thing too. like I think that 
the magazine world was a very extremely competitive place. Like if you worked for one brand, you would kind of look at the other and you were like, we don't like you guys. But I think digital has been this interesting thing because people want to partner. And they realize that within the digital world, if you do collabs and partnerships, all ships rise, right? So I think that um, for women in particular, we get this bad rap that we're like catty in the office and that like women are back talking. And yes, like the mean girls thing does exist. Like it definitely, I even see with like my 10 year old, like there's some mean girls in her class already. Like it starts young and it doesn't really stop until like you get older and like you're in the workplace. So for me, like one of the requirements of who I hire I always say no divas. Like I've worked with divas before and it's like just even introducing one kind of toxic person into the mix can change everything. So um, I like to mirror, I guess, like some of the bosses who I've had who I feel like they've worked with integrity and they've helped to just like have everybody understand and have their own voice that it's like, you know, we're not here to hold anybody down. So I feel like when I look at – young women who are starting out and young men starting out in business, I feel like it's that thing of like, don't look at everyone and feel competitive. And it's really easy to do, especially with like Instagram, where I even follow people sometimes. And it's like, because you're only seeing their amazing, amazing highlights, their life looks so dreamy. But just to remember that it's like, everybody has their problems, one. And then also, you just in the long run, we are all going to do better if we help each other. Love that. Thank you, Michelle Lee. Thank you. That was Michelle Lee, the editor-in-chief of Allure. You can find her work on Allure.com and on Instagram at Lee. Thanks for listening to Superwomen. Please rate and review us on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in next week. Superwomen is brought to you by Prudential, promoting their new project, The State of Us. Today, less than half of us believe we're on track to meet our financial goals. America is changing, and with it, the financial challenges we face. That's why Prudential has partnered with wellness expert Alexandra Drain. They're traveling across the country, talking to real people people in a project called The State of Us. From the town with the longest lifespan to the town with the highest birth rate to the smallest town in America, their goal is to uncover challenges getting in the way of financial wellness. Because even though our challenges may seem overwhelming, Prudential believes there's a path forward for everyone. To learn more about the financial challenges facing America, visit prudential.com forward slash state of us.